Hi, and welcome to the Orion Podcast with Jessa and Laurel. In this episode, we connect with Bill Halligan, who is a consultant, attorney, and rock star in the environmental industry. We get to know his career story, recent engagements with the legislature, and vision for our future. Plus, there are loads of gemstones in there for how to get engaged in projects and policies that have an environmental benefit. Listen until the end when Bill takes us home. Enjoy. Transform business, change the world. That's the Tory Project's mission. If you're concerned about environmental degradation, social injustice, or the shredding of our democracy, check out Tory Project. This exciting new organization teaches entrepreneurs how to build highly profitable businesses that also act as a force for good in the world. Follow Tory Project on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Check out David J. Farron on LinkedIn to watch his videos designed for first-time founders and entrepreneurs. Sign up to join their next bootcamp or volunteer to help out at www.toryproject.org. Hey, Laurel. Hey, Jessa. Who's our guest today? We have Bill Halligan of Harrison Associates, and he is the president of the Association of Environmental Professionals, uh, an industry organization in California. Thank you for being with us, Bill. Absolutely delighted to be with you guys. Oh, I thought, you. that feels good. Thank you. And, um, <laughs> yeah, and how Jessa, are we introduced to Bill? We are connected to Bill because the Association of Environmental Professionals is the go-to organization to meet experts in the field and connect. And I joined AEP, gosh, I think it was like 10 years ago and at like a chapter level. And I was connected to you because of your role in leadership. And then we grew together and I, now I'm on the state board of directors and we meet all the time to work on AEP programs. And um, we were just talking earlier about how we don't get to see each other very much during COVID, but we're on the phone a lot, like on video calls a lot. So yes. Bill, <laughs> our yes, listeners, yes, Bill. <laughs> our listeners are not um, all AEP folks. Gotcha. So let's start by explaining to our audience what the environmental industry is and what you do in it. Okay. Um, so the environmental profession can, can be a lot of different things, but um, generally, um, you know, we're comprised of environmental practitioners, generalists that work um, doing environmental review documents um, pursuant to the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA or the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA. Um, and then, you know, there are engineers and water quality specialists and biologists and, um, you know, climate change professionals, people working in the climate adaptation world, um, attorneys, um, you know, housing advocates. Um, it's kind of, kind of a, a big tent and and now a growing part of the practice, I think is um, actually implementing some of the, you know, the, the uh, laws and regulations that we've um, enacted here in California, like, you know, trying to achieve, uh, you know, net zero energy and uh, renewable, uh, the re renewable energy portfolio, um, and you know some of the things that you're you're doing, Laurel, and and you know um, Devin and the you know Devin Muto and the solar uh, world and wind energy and um, really trying to reduce our carbon footprint, at, you know, as as a state and achieve you know our broad and aggressive environmental goals. I think that's a key point. Yeah, I think that is that was a really good. That was a great question, Laurel, and great answer, Bill. But I think it's so important because, so I, my background is not in the environmental industry, um, as I mentioned, so I will not get, I, well, I never get too technical, but I have worked at an environmental consulting company before, but my background's in business. And so I would meet so many people who, when I told them, you know, oh, it's an environmental consulting company, they're like, oh, you know, I do this, like, I do, you know, like, 
air quality monitoring. I'm like, cool. We don't do any of that because it is such a big and broad industry. And, you know, in my role too, I would get, and I, I know with AEP, you know, you get a lot of, um, you know, perspective um, candidates like looking for jobs and looking for advice to get into the industry. And so I would receive a lot of applicants for people who I would look as more as like activists. And yes. you know, like, I care about the environment. I want to do good. I want to work here. I'm like, that's really cool. But like, you you need to have like a technical skill set. <laughs> you know, like you're applying to be, you know, whatever, an ecologist or biologist. You need you need to, to look into this. But I think that it is such a broad industry that if you are strategic and you can take your skill set you have, you can get into it. So like you said, like, you know, law, engineering, um, policy, all these things. So anyway, um, I think that's great foundation for, uh, you know, getting into this conversation that, that there, it is a very broad industry. <laughs> yeah, we, we have, um, over 15,000 environmental professionals in, in California and, and it's, you know, continuing to grow and, and then, um, membership of AEP, we're up around 1800 members, which is up from about, you know, we were kind of stuck at 1700 and um, Laurel's been doing a great job and, you know, <laughs> getting the word out. So, yeah, it's, um, the future, I think the future is, is definitely bright in the environmental um, practice. I appreciate you saying that because um, when we study environmental studies in college, it's kind of like the doomsday degree where you're like, the world is effed. We're all effed. Like, what, what can we yeah. do? And that's why, you know, as Justin mentioned, we get a lot of environmental activists that want to become, want a job in the environmental industry. It's not um, just private sector folks either. There's a lot of public agency professionals. So people that work in city, county, government, state government, federal government, and their job is either the stewardship of natural resources and like long-term monitoring and maintenance of these open spaces. And then there's also people that are responsible for, for um, reviewing projects. So if you want to build a house, a shopping mall, um, or even like a master subdivision community, there are people in the public agency that need to accept your application and review them for environmental compliance. So a lot of our industry is compliance-related not necessarily advocacy until you get into policy, which is really exciting, Bill, because you're an attorney and you also have a role in the AEP's legislative committee and you just came back from the state capitol. Tell us. Well, to, yeah, I know. Tell us who you get to talk to and all the things that you get to explain to them and why that's important for people, uh, lay persons, as well as professionals to understand. Sure. Um, yeah. So let's see. I, I've been involved in um, AEP's Legislative Review Committee for about 20 years. I've chaired that committee. Um, and then for about the past 15 years, I've been uh, participating in, um, in what we call Capital Days. So once a year, uh, um, a group of us go up to the Capitol uh, with our lobbyist, and AEP has has um, a great firm called Cal Advisors, um, Will Gonzalez and Matt Kloppenstein, who have just been doing an outstanding job for us um, in Sacramento, um, you know, getting us connected with the right people, um, in, you know, improving our, um, uh, you know, our, our profile there in Sacramento, and so through through this through the uh, legislative review committee, we review uh, bills that are uh, proposed. You know, related to the California Environmental Quality Act, related to housing, related to um, anything environmental, um, sustainability, um, traffic, a, water, traffic, yeah. water. There's a, a bunch of bills um, this year related to climate adaptation. So um, we we have now our profile is is so strong now that 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 legislators are reaching out to us, um, and it's uh, it's it's really great. You know, la last year uh, we we worked with the assembly members uh, Chu and Friedman on AB twenty three twenty three. And we were part of their their working group, um, and then uh, this year um, 
they're working on a potential exemption for housing elements. And, and um, the proponent of that bill has reached out to us and, and really wants to get our input. So the goal, our goal um, is to really make sure that that legislation achieves um, the intended goals. Um, you know, whether it's to promote affordable housing or to try to streamline the secret process for certain types of projects. Um, we we want to make sure that that it really will result in streamlining without um, having negative consequences to the environment. And it's really helpful to know because sometimes the people that write the bills or draft or propose them don't know the unintended consequences of very like specific words that go into the language. And unless you're a detailed environmental professional and practitioner for a long period of time, you're not able to kind of catch those. So it's really awesome for the legislature to say, hey, AEP, you are the go-to folks. You know all the things related to environmental laws. Um, what do you think is, is going to be the long-term impact on the environment and or policies around or connected to environmental law that we're not seeing, that we're not capturing. And and you just, and I, one of my favorite things that you had said was when you were in the Capitol days this year in 2021, you- Which was virtual, by the way. Virtual, yes, sir. So, Safely. So the, the last time I was on an airplane was for Capitol days uh, last year in 2020. Wow. And so this year, all of our meetings were were via Zoom, but it was still, it was still very effective, but- uh, um, hopefully we'll be back in person next year. And it was effective because I think you said you met, you met with 12 legislative offices to brief them. Some of them are new and maybe they need to understand what CEQA is in general. Maybe they're not even like aware, right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, some, some legislators may have come from, you know, a, a city council. So they'll have some, some knowledge of, planning issues, urban planning issues, um, you know, CEQA, the environmental process, but many, many do not. And, you know, and many do not have a background in that, in that area. So AP, you know, is, is here as a resource to them to achieve, you know, their, their, you know, intended goals for their, for their particular bill. Can you guys, um, while we have you for a non-billable hour, um, <laughs> all your jokes. Oh, I mean, yes. <laughs> right? Well, no, it's lunchtime. I'm not supposed to be billing right now anyway. Okay, so great. Much. Thank you. Um, can you uh, explain CEQA and what it is? And I know, you know, it's, it's specific to California. And I'm, like I said, like kind of adjacent to the industry. And I know CEQA. I know a lot of people who are involved in real estate. CEQA comes up a lot, but can you give kind of like a, a simplified, I know it's like a super detailed technical uh, process, but can you, or policy, I should say, but can you explain it? Sure. Um, so, you know, coming, coming out of the 60s, there was a lot of uh, social activism, a lot of environmental activism. And um, uh, um, so as a result, at first the federal government uh, enacted the National Environmental Policy Act, which covers, you know, federal activities. And then as a follow-up, the following year in 1970, California in, in, uh, enacted the California Environmental Quality Act. And so um, it, it its main function are, um, uh, you know, it's, it's public review requirements so that decision-makers are well-informed when they make a decision about a, a project. So that would be a discretionary action that a lead agency is considering. So that could be a, a housing development. It could be, you know, a permit to, to build a, you know, a, a, a wind energy um, farm. It could be, you know, a new, a new park. Um, so CEQA requires that, that, um, uh, that we look at the potential environmental impacts of that project. We try to come up with mitigation measures that, that mitigate those impacts or alternatives to the project that mitigate those impacts. Um, 
Um, but if we still have significant impacts at the end of the day, you can adopt a statement of overriding considerations, meaning that the benefits of the project outweigh the, the um, significant environmental impacts. So there, it, it's really the procedural requirements to go through this process and also giving the public an opportunity to comment. That's a public and, and public agencies. That's a huge part of it. But then, um, you know, substantive requirements regarding, you know, mitigating your impacts. I'll add that it's not an environmental compliance law per se. It's a public disclosure act. Mm -hmm. So there's other things like the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, Federal and State Endangered Species Act, and the California Fish and Game Code, just to name a few regulations that actually protect those specific resources like birds, um, vegetation, air, water. Water, yeah. Yeah those specific things. And then CEQA goes, okay, there's all these um, natural resources that a project should look at and make sure that they're in compliance with and understand the level of impact this project might have and tell the public about it and give the public either 30, 45, there's various windows, give the public an opportunity to look at the document and comment so members of the public, lay people, you don't have to be an environmental professional. You can read an environmental document and say, hey, I don't think that you really, you know, studied the birds long enough. I think there's other birds here that you missed. Or, hey, I'm really concerned about stormwater quality because I live next to the beach. Did you really look at that? Can you clarify? And by law, under CEQA, you got to respond to those comments. So it really makes this engagement with the public um, a requirement. Correct. Yeah, it's it's all about pu public involvement and agency involvement. And I think that's a key point because so California has it, um, New York kind of has a similar one, and in the federal government has one. And there's overlap, but there's there's differences. And and just overall for the layperson, this is another way to get involved. Um, if you're an activist, uh, you know, I, this might be controversial, but the Sierra Club is an organization that has a lot of attorneys that are very sophisticated and they review environmental documents and hold people accountable and hold their feet to the fire. And if you're a member of those kinds of organizations, you know, your voice can be heard. If you're a member of AEP, we have a lobbyist, your voice gets to be heard. If you're a resident of the city or a county, your voice gets to be heard. So in my personal opinion, everyone should be taught CEQA and NEPA in high school as part of like civic engagement, as part of being a normal human being in society. You should know where you can get involved in environmental matters. Sure. Um, the, the one thing I would add, though, is that, um, you know, when, when getting involved, and I think involvement is great, but too often people get involved only for their own personal self-interest. You know, um, they're trying to stop an affordable housing project in their neighborhood. They're trying to stop a waste to energy facility, you know, a mile down the street, or they're, they're, they're gonna, they're trying to stop a new wind farm or, a, you know, or a, a solar facility. Cause they don't um, want it in their backyard. Right. Indeed. Indeed. That's NIMBY. it, not in my backyard. Not in my backyard. I am a NIMBY so. for leaf blowers. <laughs> is there is like something for that? <laughs> Under maybe air quality, depending on. <laughs> well, I think they're supposed to be electric now. So mm -hmm. they, they still may be noisy, but hopefully they're not putting out any emissions. But they, they used to be, you know, two stroke engines and, you know, very smelly. Um, but. But, you know, there, there are a, a bunch of environmental projects. No, there are a bunch of projects that have greater environmental benefits, but they might have a localized impact. So we, we need to think about that. You know, is, you know, um, you know the, the, the re renewable energy portfolio standard, you know, that, that's going to take a lot of work and a lot of projects to get to, you know, to meet, California's energy demands with through zero net um, emissions. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to take a lot of work. So we can't, we can't keep fighting 
um, these, these projects and making it hard to permit them if we're going to meet our overall air quality and greenhouse gas emissions targets. I mean, um, you, you just hit, you hit a key point, though. I wanted to interrupt you and say, in the pandemic, people had to stay home, right? So yes. Los Angeles and a lot of other places that normally have impacts from traffic saw clear skies, were breathing clear air. And they saw that environmental quality is important and we can live a more sustainable lifestyle. Yet that kind of work from a pandemic isn't regular, normal life. And so a lot of added work and a lot of behavioral changes need to happen for California to meet its greenhouse gas emissions goals and its renewable energy goals. And that's what Bill is saying is like, it's really troublesome when self-interested parties oppose a project that has a net positive impact and helps us helps the state achieve its strategic initiatives because they CEQA and NEPA are often used to to halt to, to to stop to stop or delay projects and and I you know I would also put in there affordable housing and uh, higher density housing near transit um, you know they. I, I really feel that every community has, um, you know, has both a need and a duty to provide varied housing types at all different, you know, at different income levels so that people have an opportunity to live close to their job. Um, you know, we, we, we have, during the lockdown, most of us were working from home and um, and we saw those environmental benefits, you know, of getting all those cars off the road, um, uh, you know, just 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 like you said, the, the skies were, were bluer. Like I saw this spring, I saw a ton of monarch butterflies that I hadn't seen since I was a kid. Like monarch butterflies used to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. And and then, I, you know, and then. This past spring, I don't know if it's related. This is totally anecdotal. I'm not a biologist, but there were just more, there were birds chirping. There, you know, there was, there's all kinds of things. My wife and I were sitting outside during the pandemic and just noticing all these, you know, changes in our own neighborhood where, you know, I've been here for 20 years and she's been here for 15 years. Um, and here's so there, Orange County, right? Yeah, uh, right. Uh, in in Orange County, in uh, Huntington Beach. Um, so we, you know, we um, the affordable housing thing and the housing crisis is not just a social issue, but it's an environmental issue. You know, we we need we need to get people closer to their work. You know, we commuting forty five miles or. 50 miles to work is not good for the environment. Um, and, it, you know, and, and it's, um, it's, you know, it's not good for families. It's not, and it's not good for us as a society to be spending so much time on the road. <clears throat> I mean, I'm biased, Bill, because of the work I do. I think the solution is electric vehicles that are produced using 100% renewable baseload power that's geothermal. And that's because that's the world I, I, I live in. But backing, take a second to back up. You have a long history and experience and a breadth and depth of knowledge in the industry how did this start for you? And like, why the, why environmental professionalism for you? Okay. Um, all right. So I can't say that uh, I grew up wanting to be in this industry. Um, you know, I probably wanted to be an astronaut or a pilot or a rock star. Um, and, and so I went to, I started as a freshman at UC Irvine uh, and I was a, I was an economics major, but I was in the social ecology dorm at UCI. And so over time, when I had electives, I would choose, I would want to be in class with my, my dormies. And so I started taking social ecology courses and um, it, it turns out I loved 
I loved those courses much more than I loved numbers. You know, like just just some of the, you know, learning about like Robert Moses in New York and, you know, all of his redevelopment projects in the, the 50s and 60s and, you know, Cabrini Green in, in, um, in Chicago. And where that's where urban planning was uh, kind of, you know, failed people and had, you know, bad consequences for lots of groups. Um, but urban planning, I started to see that urban planning could also be solutions for communities. And so I ended up, I, at half, halfway through college, I, I changed majors. I, I dumped economics and I went into social, social ecology. And then my emphasis was environmental analysis and design. So that, that's how I ended up in the field. And I, I remember my dad, my dad was a police officer and so my dad's very concrete, you know, he, um, he, you know, when I said, oh, I'm taking social ecology and he says, well, what kind of job can that get you? <laughs> and, I, and at the time I wasn't really sure. And then, um, and then uh, UC Irvine required that you, you do um, eight units of internship. And so I was working for the city of Irvine in the community services department. And so I did a, um, I did an internship for uh, Debbie Mears, who was a park planner. And I started reviewing EIRs as part of that internship. Environmental impact reports. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, and I was always a strong writer and I, you know, I had good analytical skills and so then I, I got out of school and then her husband, Dwayne Mears, was looking for environmental analysts at, at his firm, the planning center, and sent him my resume, got a job, and I've been here ever since. And I found out you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at it. So, And why, why did you become an attorney? And what was the focus? Uh, so, um, so... I became, so it was, it was, it was the mid nineties. We're in a recession. I wasn't all that, I was still working full time, but I wasn't all that busy. And I, and I was, you know, I'd already always kind of thought about law school, you know, I thought the, again, you know, law school is about, you know, cases and people and, um, and it's less about numbers. So, it was like, well, do I get an MBA or do I get a law degree? And I liked how law could, you know, it could help me in my own career as an environmental practitioner um, because that's what we do all day, interpret laws. Um, but if I wanted to change careers, if I wanted to go, you know, do family law, I, I could. I liked how varied it was. And, and just, you know, once again... I kind of fell into it. My buddy calls me up, my buddy from elementary school, junior high and high school. He's like, hey, uh, my wife and I are going to take the LSAT. Have you ever thought about going to law school? This is ridiculous. Like, what kind of friends do you have? <laughs> good ones. I, I'm a good group, a good group of friends. Um, and I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's take the LSAT. Oh, my God. And then I... Uh, we both got accepted to the same school and then, uh, and then I go the first day and he's like, Oh yeah, I, I'm not going. I'm like, what? I thought we we're going to go to law school together. So I stayed stuck with it and he quit. So I love this. This is making me laugh so much because I mean, I'm teasing, but it's like, you know, my friends are like, Hey, we got a couple bottles of wine. What are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm like, man, I, I'm rethinking my friend group. <laughs> But I did something similar when I was in college, much different outcome, (laughs) but I signed up. I'm like, you know, I guess I should go to law school. That seems like a good thing to do. Signed up. I studied for the LSAT, signed up to take it um, on a Saturday morning, very, very early. And I had a very, very late Friday night. And when I woke up, I was like, I I was not studying Friday night for the record. (laughs) I woke up Saturday morning. I was like, this doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> it's like, in my law career. <laughs> these moments in life 
that, you know, that change your direction. Mm-hmm. You know, that, those simple, that simple decision that you, of drinking the night before <laughs> kept you from taking the LSAT. You read through on, the lines there, huh? It was on purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was uh, probably self-sabotage. Um, I <laughs> yeah, love it, right. though. That is, like, such a fun story. <laughs> I know I think this is so funny. Okay. I know. Like, I feel sad. Okay. You show up. You pass it. You get into law school. <laughs> I just love how, like, you just make it happen. You're like, man, I'm going to expand my life now. No big deal. NBD. Where did you go to law school? And, like, how did – how was it? <laughs> Uh, okay, so I went to Chapman University, and uh, um, which it, it, it's locally here in the city of Orange, and um, uh, so and, and and so and they had they were they were starting a new law school and they were going to have a night program, and um, that was really attractive to me because because the, there there was no way financially I could have quit my job and gone full-time to law school. So, um, so yeah, I, for four years, you know, I'd work all day, jump in the car, you know, jam up to, to orange and, and then spend three hours in class. And then every weekend was, was studying, reading case law, um, doing assignments. And then Monday started all over again. (laughs) <laughs> so, it, I mean, it was, it was tough, um, but, but well worth it. Um, and then, um, and then I, I just want to give a shout out to, to my professor, uh, Tony Arnold uh, at Chapman. He's now at University of Louisville, but uh, he, he led the, um, the uh, uh, land use environment or environmental and real estate program at, mm-hmm. at Chapman. And so we were, you know, like-minded thinkers and, and um, he was great, you know, one of my mentors as a professor, but also a great friend outside of school. And we're, we're friends to this day. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that many of us in the environmental profession thought about going to law school. For me, it was Duh, Aaron Brockovich and like all the books I read in college, Rachel Carson and all these really inspirational women that saw environmental quality having a direct impact on human beings and how it was not okay. And 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 so I was like, there's something about the injustice of degrading the environment. I, I got into the environmental profession because I watched the biodiversity of organisms in the water decline. So like coral reefs and stingrays and sharks and all those like big things that you can see. Right. And then you start to get into the environmental world and you're like, man, there are these environmental disasters, like chemical plants, oil spills, rivers on fire, <laughs> really insane stuff. Um, just a little bit ago, like not even oh. just like a little bit ago and how far we've come since CEQA was signed in 1970 and then the Clean Water Act in 1972, arguably my favorite, because that like you, you need water, clean water to live. It's it's kind of important. Favorite acts, you guys. <laughs> um, so like We're such question, nerds. We have this, favorite. Thank you for saying that. I wanted to say it and I don't know you all enough to say that yet, but um, I was took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> well, as you guys are talking about this and all these big problems, you know, that come up as a result of environmental issues. And I was thinking about this earlier when you're talking about affordable housing and the goals. And so for me, and I think I, I view California as a leader when it comes to environmental policy and other people, I think there's a view where it's like California is overregulated. It takes, it's too long. It's too expensive. And so, you know, it's, like, what is the trade-off of that? Like, are there case studies as far as like, you know, California is doing things right and other states are following? And then, you know, from your ability from a, you know, technical and legal aspect to help influence the legislation, like, is there being, is there stuff being done to, to, I don't want to say deregulate, but like speed up the process to achieve these goals by the deadlines? I'm sorry, that's kind of like two broad questions, but break a normie. Well, you know, there, we have obviously a, a number of, you know, competing uh, goals, you know, in our state and, and uh, you know, 
all, you know, all communities, um, you know, but um, we need to, um, we need to balance all of these things. You know, we, we need to protect the natural environment, but we, we also, you know, need to provide adequate and decent housing for our population. Because if you, if you don't provide adequate housing, you're, it's leading to a whole host of other environmental issues. Um, you know, uh, homeless camps, you know, living in our waterways, living adjacent to our waterways, um, you know, trash, debris, um, you know, human waste ending up in, in our, our waterways. The people are here. Um, so they, you know, there's this thought that if I stop development or like no growth or slow growth initiatives, oh, I'm saving the environment. No, you're protecting, you know, you're protecting your, your free flowing roads and you're keeping, um, you're keeping lower income individuals out of your community, even though they're probably teaching your kids at school. They could be your local police officer, your local firefighter, um, you know, the, the person you see at Starbucks. What, shouldn't, you know, I just feel like every community, um, you know, needs to make a commitment to provide a wide range of housing so that people can live close to their jobs. And, and let's, let's stop forcing people out of existing urban areas and into, you know, greenfield development, you know, beyond suburban development. Um, you know, let, let's try to, let's try to protect um, the greatest things about California, our, our natural environment, our, our, you know, our coastlines, but still, uh, we still have a, you know, a, a duty and a need to provide for our population to provide adequate housing for our population. And I think when we talk about our other, what are other states doing and is California leading? In some ways we do um, because we have such a high abundance and diversity of natural resources and there's such a high population and density of people. And when you have high density people and natural abundance, there's, that's a lot of density of things and this ecosystem needs to work in harmony with each other. Otherwise you're creating this waste, either economic waste like negative externalities, physical waste that goes into the environment, but something is messing with that system so that we cannot live efficiently or effectively together. And, and that's something that happened in California for many reasons, because of natural disasters, because of public health issues. And now we see it happening in places like Florida that are really close to the water because they're super flat. And with climate change and the, the ice caps melting, the sea level is rising and going up through their storm drains and flooding all of the city where all the density is. So you literally have this like open space intrusion into this very dense human environment. And because they don't have these strict environmental planning and land use laws like California does, they have to react really aggressively right away instead of being able to avoid or minimize that impact from the start. So people are, some states are like being forced to address these hazards. Right. I, you know, you bring up Miami, they, they've kind of, you know, put their head in the sand so far, you know, you've got, you've got, you know, city of Miami is what, you know, two to five feet above sea level. And, um, you know, and, and that's a lot of really valuable real estate. And there, there hasn't, there hasn't been any economic impact on real estate prices yet, but I'm just wondering, you know, you know, as, as we move into 20, you know, 2030, 2040, 2050, it, it's going to have an economic impact. So, you know, you, uh, uh, Jessa, you were kind of talking about, you know, um, government regulation and the economy and economic impact, but, you know, they're all important. Um, but if you don't, 
take the right measures now to protect the environment, you're going to have economic impacts. And then in California, yes, there's a lot of environmental regulation and, and maybe some of it is over-regulation, but I, the goal, I think, is to make sure that complying with environmental regulation is, is efficient, like complying with CEQA should be an efficient process. You know, it, you know sometimes um, people use the process to delay projects, but if CEQA is done right, you should be able to get through that an EIR process in a year, but it requires commitment and, you know, the politics get involved where if it's an auto mall, you know, a, a city will rush it through because of the tax revenue. If it's a housing project, delay, delay, delay. Not every city. I mean, there, there are a lot of cities in California that have made a commitment, cities and counties that have made a commitment to housing and affordable housing. But there's a lot of um, a lot of communities that are um, it's almost a political death wish to vote for a housing project. So I, I, I get the politics and um, it's you know, it's a complicated issue. I think but, but I think politicians need to step up and be leaders. Exactly. And that's why, in my opinion, environmental leadership is important because it's everything. It is public health. It is the reason we have politicians. You can't, you cannot live your life or survive or thrive without natural resources. And, and therefore we have put all these regulations on them to make sure that growth doesn't happen unchecked, but that doesn't mean that it's no growth everywhere. And so politics come involved where they have to have the long-term view that if we're going to curb climate change, for example, or increase renewable energy or improve air quality. They're very, very hard targets to meet. And business is set up to make those changes happen sooner because we're not using public funds, right? We're using private funds and we have the economy to develop and we have all these things to develop. And so if you if you think about the environment as separate from a community or separate from the economy, you're doing yourself a disservice. If you look at the environmental leadership as leading economic development, as leading public health, then you're like, you can see the interconnectedness of it and make the correct decisions about housing and where that goes and density and where that goes. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, just like everything these days, the, um, the environment has been politicized. You know, um, talking about NEPA and the Clean Water Act and Clean Air Act and, you know, the EPA, that was all Richard Nixon, a Republican. Mm -hmm. You know, CEQA was enacted by, you know, Ronald Reagan in 1970. And then here in California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, a Republican, was really a leader on climate change when he was in office. So, um, you know, I, it's, it, you know, we're, we're all on this planet together, Republicans and Democrats and independents and everybody else. Uh, I don't know how you uh, can be, you know, you, you know, we're, we have one environment, you know, and we, and hopefully this planet will be around for, so that my kids who will probably see the year 2100 since they're only seven. I mean, I want them to be left a, you know, a viable, healthy planet. What does that look like? Oh, go ahead. No, that's a great question. I'm sorry I interrupted. I feel like you're in a flow. What I was going to say is, you know, I'm thinking about like environmental leadership and, and, you know, something you said earlier about like people care what impacts them directly. And so, you know, when I think about this, I get overwhelmed very fast because I'm like a, I'm a linear thinker. And so it's not a linear process. It's, you know, very much like you said, interconnected, like it's, it's very circular. And so, you know, I'm like, I'm thinking about the pandemic, I think is a very recent and good example of, you know, public health crisis shuts down the economy, improves the environment. It's like this whole, like everything was connected in that way. And so, and I feel like we reacted as 
a country very individualistic and weren't able to come together because if it didn't have a direct impact on you, it didn't really care. And so I think, you know, we're known for having an individualistic society in the United States. And when we talk about these environmental issues, you know, some of us won't be around to see them. And so it's like, well, well, as a leader and a leader in the environmental industry, how do you get people engaged and how do you get them basically to care about something that may never really directly impact them? You know, that that's a good question because, um, you know, talking about political involvement or showing up at a city council hearing, you might get a notice. And if you're, if you're for the project, you won't go speak at city council. If you get a notice, a public notice, and it's a project you hate, that's when you show up. So, um, I think one of the good things about uh, the pandemic and um, and being able to participate in planning commission hearings and city council hearings uh, from your home via Zoom is that we have now made it so much easier to participate in the local political process. And at least what I've seen on 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 my projects, you're seeing a broader cross-section of the community participate rather than just people that hate a project or are retired. That's typically who you see show up at a city council hearing. You're not getting a true cross-section of the community. And, um, and, and that's why you're, you're getting so much opposition to affordable housing or higher density housing. Um, I really like um, this this Yimby movement. Yes, in my backyard, and uh, you know it's 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 younger people, millennials um, that that can't afford a home in California. They want to be able to buy a home in California, and they can't. And so they're showing up to city council hearings, and they're saying, "This is a great project. Please, you know, please approve this project." Um, you know, I, I, that, that's been a, a, a great thing. Um, some, so I think we need to make it easier for people to participate. I think that's a key practical tip is it is easy to participate now because there's online ways to engage. It's not an intu- intuitive thing. Like a, a lay person isn't going to go, gosh, I wish I could participate mm-hmm. in the city council hearing on a Thursday night. But when this is also a discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion, because the people are, that are making decisions are only hearing from opposition from people who are not the people that are going to live in those affordable housing projects. So people of diverse populations now have an opportunity to show up and, as you said, support a project. So my recommendation to listeners is to find projects and write letters of support, provide written public comment or verbal public comment as well as just get more involved in your local community, whether it's town council, city council, county board of supervisors, planning commission hearings. I would challenge everybody in the next couple weeks from listening to this, figure out what public hearings are available in your community and just see what people are deciding about and see if it affects you. I think that, I think people don't even know what civic engagement is at some point. Yeah. I mean, and you know, kind of along those lines, like, you know, I'll be in that camp, like sadly, but what does it mean to write a public comment? Is it, can it just be something as simple as like, yes, I support this or no, or do you need to like write a whole letter? It it can be, it can be a short email. Um, and, and it has an impact, you know, I, I have, you know, city councils, um, you know, and, and mayors talking about how many, how much correspondence they received you know, how many people are in favor of something and how many people are opposed um, to, to something. So it it has an impact, even if it's a short little email. And we, I, I also come from the idea that there's projects that we're developing and there's policy that we're developing. What are some ways that you show up as an environmental leader at home or um, at work, aside from being an environmental professional, what are some very small practical 
ways that people can change their behavior in support of these larger, big ideas that you sort of sure. leave the state capital? Yeah, that that is a great question. And um, I, I reached out to Rich Walter at ICF, and he, he turned me on to this. Um, it's a blog from Columbia University, and it's called the 35 easiest ways to reduce your carbon footprint. And, um, you know, it, it, it goes through a whole bunch of little things that we all can do in our lives, um, like food, you know, eating low on the food chain, um, choose organic and local foods. One thing that my wife and I did, you know, we, we have a small, you know, a small lot in Huntington Beach but we took a portion of our front yard and we made a garden and we, we've grown tomatoes. We've grown cucumbers. We grew pumpkins for Halloween. Um, and I forgot what a homegrown tomato tastes like. <laughs> like, I'm like, Oh my God, this, this is amazing. And d- like doing little stuff like that. Um, some of the other things they mention, you know, don't buy fast fashion buy vintage, buy less stuff, um, you know, bring your reusable bag, which is, you know, we, in California, we, we need, we have to do that. Um, you know, and, and then like in the, in the workplace, um, but both at my, my old firm and at my current firm, we are looking at what the future of the work environment looks like. And, um, now that we've seen what it's like to let employees work from home for, for a year, and it's it's been very positive. Um, productivity's up, profitability's up. At least you know in service industries, um, that that takes you know tons and tons of of you know carbon emissions out of out of the air just by working from home. And so going forward. You know, we're we're looking at a hybrid model of, um, you know, maybe going into the office one day a week. If you you know set up all your you know internal meetings where like if you need to do a a, a personnel review or a staff review, set, set that up, set them all up on the same day, and then reduce the number of times you're on the road commuting. And now with with Zoom, like you know platforms, Microsoft Teams, and Zoom, and we can we see how effective we can be just through this platform. I don't need to fly up to the Bay Area to to meet with other members of of my company. You know um, that that's gonna. I think that's a long term change that's really going to have a, a, a huge effect. Um, you know, yeah. What on this? on the uh, Columbia blog, it says drive less. That's one way to drive less is let employees, you know, give employees, you know, options. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, a lot of good stuff in here. It's, uh, I mean, yeah, just, uh-huh, go ahead. well, ju- yeah, just, it's, it's uh, uh, a blog uh, by Columbia university, the 35 easiest ways to reduce your carbon footprint. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, we, I miss you. I want to see you in person. I want to get in my car. I want to see you. And, <laughs> and um, I want to see you not only for your technical skills and the lovely leadership you do through AEP and through your day job, but also because of your hobbies. <laughs> uh oh. is going? <laughs> I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share your favorite extracurricular um, activity in the music space. Share a little bit about your your background in a in a band, and if you feel so inclined, perhaps give us a little ditty. All right. Okay. So, um, uh, in addition to being a secret practitioner and and, and lawyer, um, <laughs> I. Uh, I am a part-time, I'm not going to say rock star, but rock aficionado. Um, rock God. <laughs> <laughs> my wife says I play in too many bands, but uh, um, so I, I, I have an originals band called Valicious, 
Um, I play with the, um, uh, some other guys in a band called Sound Cake, uh, and they we do a lot of covers. Um, and then I also play in the AEP band, Woo-hoo! which is made up of environmental professionals and planners. And uh, um, you know, we it's a that band is a totally different thing. Like that set list is all over the map because we have members, you know. We have members that are 30 and we have members that are retired and, you know, they're approaching 70, but, but it's all 18. We have young members as well. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, But it's uh, I just have a blast. You know, my, my originals band delicious. We, we played the sunset strip, uh, the whiskey at go-go. We played the hard rock hotel in Vegas. Um, uh, You know, we just, we have a blast. We, we go, you know, it, it's my, um, it's close, the closest thing I'll ever be to, to being a rock star. Like we don't trash our hotel room, but <laughs> we get a nice hotel room up at, you know, on the sunset strip. Wait, and, no, we do AEP, the AEP band, yeah. <laughs> and a, we trash the hotel room. <laughs> yeah, well, that, yeah, that, that's true. But <laughs> my band, we try to be respectful of hotel rooms. <laughs> Well, we usually wrap up our um, interviews with the three-point landing or three key takeaways that you want our audience to remember from this experience. I don't know if you can say the three things as you strum the guitar, but we'd love to hear what you want our audience to remember. Okay. The three takeaways I think would be, you know, opposition to certain types of projects, you know, mixed use, affordable housing, renewable energy, that's not necessarily good for the environment. Um, You know, and then I I think the housing crisis and and homelessness in California, that is not just a social issue. That is really an environmental issue. And, And then also slow growth and no growth initiatives in urban and suburban areas it's not always about saving the environment. It's about getting through stoplights faster. It, you know, it's about preventing uh, higher density housing. Um, so just be aware, you know, I think that the environmental um, message gets uh, skewed oftentimes. Yeah, agreed. And so, and and just, you know, be involved. I think, you know, vote, um, you know, participate at the local level. Um, So that's what I I would say. Thank you. If you want, I can, as I don't, do you do a fade? This is great because there's always like an awkward pause because the way our system is. So we just have to sit here. So, yes. You Take us home. Yeah. 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 Take us home, Bill. All right, I'll start. I'll start playing, and then, <laughs> and as it goes to black, I'll assume that we're done. Okay. <laughs> it will end broadcast. So okay. What, okay. okay, but it says end a broadcast. I can I can stop playing, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Go okay. It. Here it goes. Silent steel in the dead of the night Though we both lie close together We'll see miles apart as I had Was it something I said or something I did Did my words not come out right Though I tried not to hurt you Though I tried Guess that's why they say There as it's stone just like every night has its own just like every cowboy sings the same sad song as it's stone alright oh, send it Jessa <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Orion Podcast. If you're looking for a thoughtful gift for yourself or others, shop ethical jewelry with a story at article22.com. Enjoy 10% off qualifying purchases with promo code ORION10. That's www.article22.com and code ORION10. Enjoy!